0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Paula, and this is my daughter, Annalise. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and as we prepare for Christmas and long for Jesus' return, we light this symbol as a symbol of our hope in the God who keeps the promises He made to our ancestors, to Abraham and His descendants. May it remind us to live with confident expectation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: The Old Testament reading is found in Ruth 4, 10, 13 through 15. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought To be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him The word of the Lord.
1: If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 1:1, 1, 1, 5 through 6, and 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the gospel of the Lord.
2: Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing while we pray. Father God, thank you for a moment, just to be in your presence, to let all the hustle and the bustle of the season, slow, that we could behold you, we could behold your word, we can glorify you in worship, and we ask that today that would be true. Holy Spirit, be present in this place, speak to us through your word, minister to your people, edify us, unite us, and to Christ is the head, to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, well, good morning, everyone. Take your seats, if you haven't already. My name is Evan Riedahl. I am one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. I've been on staff for eight and a half years now. What is that? Uh, and I have a very important question to settle because we are family in this room this morning and their kids are with us on this family Sunday. And families do things a little bit differently and even individuals within those families do things a little bit differently. And there are two types of people at Thanksgiving, I think. Maybe, maybe there's some, some middle ground, some gray space. But otherwise, there's two types. There are those who are like me and those who are not. (laughs) Those who are like me, which on that Thanksgiving fork, you try to get every piece of ingredient on the same forkful so that all of it is blended in your mouth at the same time. Can I see a show of hands of who are those wonderful people who just love experiencing the fullness of joy that has been set before you? Okay. And then there's people not like me who don't want any of their food to touch. Would you be willing to show your hands and be, <laughs> those who don't like your food to touch, it's okay. I, I, was, I was asking Pastor Jay and a couple of people before service, I'm like, is this a real thing? Because it seems like it's a real thing to me. And, and Jay was like, yeah, there are two things, there are two kind of meals a year that I'll let my foods touch. One is Thanksgiving and the other one is Mexican because that's the way that it's supposed to be. And I'm like, oh, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, happy Thanksgiving you all. And welcome. This is the first Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday in our series through the Book of Ruth, which is taking us through November, which this is the last Sunday of November. Um, it is the beginning of the holiday season, or somewhere weeks into it, or not quite there yet. There are things beginning, and there are things ending, and do you feel that? Do you feel this sh- shift? Hurry hurry up, slow down? And I would, just, I would be curious, would you join me for just a second in taking a collective breath as we transition from... Regular, regular time to, well, this is Advent time. It's not the pre-holidays, now it's the full holidays. Now you're supposed to rush, but you're supposed to slow down. And can we just come and say, it's okay, and we're here together. So on the count of three, can we just take a breath together to settle into just existing in the place where we're at right now? One, two, three. It is good to be with you here this morning. As we finish our series through the book of Ruth, I am asking a main question because Ruth is a beautiful example of literature. It's narrative at its finest where there's introduction and tension, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, and it happens all within a short four chapters, and today we're landing ourselves in chapter four. and It's a beautiful story of that, but the central question that I want to talk about and look at today is how the story arc of Ruth actually takes place And how do we get from death and tragedy to new life and redemption? How do we as a people, through the story of Ruth, observing it, how does Ruth herself get from death and tragedy, which is how the story starts, all the way into chapter four now, where we're landing today? New life and redemption. And to do that, I'm going to look at a couple of of lenses through the scriptures. One is going to be a zoom in on the the book of Ruth itself. Being only four chapters, it's not hard to show you in a few short minutes how the book is connected and how the book is put together to show us, okay, this is the Ark of Ruth. But in that same vein, Ruth is not just a full book in itself. It's actually then the beginning of another story because it's the only book in the Bible that ends with a genealogy. It's a really fascinating narrative uh, device where they end the book beginning another story. And so we're going to look at, so where is this story in the midst of a greater story? And then we're going to try to see if we can identify our lives somewhere along that story arc that we're being invited into this gospel narrative story, and where do we go from there? So the book of Ruth in itself, how do we get from death and tragedy to new life and redemption. And we see this in, Na- in Naomi's story, being overwhelmed with death and tragedy. This is the very opening of the book, chapter one. If you're, if you're in your Bibles, sh- you might want to turn there and then track with me how we get into chapter four. Naomi's story, overwhelmed with death and tragedy in a foreign land with a cutoff lineage to new life and redemption of all of these things, of family lineage and land. And it's really fascinating. If you're kind of a story Bible nerd, how these things get put together, When in the book of Ruth, there is a point that land and lineage are being cut off. Because this is what happened. Naomi is married. She has two sons. There's a famine. So tragedy strikes. And so they leave. They've heard that the Lord is blessing the fields in Moab. So they go there. So instantly we start with there's famines, tragedy, and we're leaving the land, which in the narrative of Israel is always a big deal because it's always a move of are we going away from the land or to the land? Are we slaves in Egypt? Are we returning from exile? Where are we in this narrative flow of coming into the land? And so so they leave the land, and then her husband dies. So now there's a famine, they're leaving the land, and she's a widow her sons marry, but then her sons both die. And so now there's a question not just of what is your inheritance in the lineage and the land, but your lineage through your family line. And so the whole tension of the book is set up in the first couple of verses in Ruth. And you're supposed to get this sense that, oh, this story, this story starts really hard. How do we get out of it? Or is it almost a Job story where she just has to sit in it. And Naomi sometimes is is referenced as a female sort of Job character. The one who says, don't call me, Naomi, call me Mara because it's it's just so bitter and there's so much grief and mourning that I'm going through. And and in the story, you get from there to somehow now in chapter four, so the rest of chapter one, two, three, now in chapter four, we actually see the resolution of the story. And it's, it's a beautiful way because what starts with death and tragedy, as you saw in some of the readings from the Old Testament in Ruth in chapter four this morning, ends in redemption and new life. And Ruth and Boaz, they have their back and forth. They, they both take their roles and their place. And, and then they get married and there's the one, the, the beginning of the first half of chapter four is, is the dance back and forth. with there's a kinsman redeemer that's closer and let's go to him. And if you, if you redeem her, then you actually, you actually have to redeem her daughter-in-law. So it's Naomi and Ruth and the land, and the family lineage. And he goes, ooh, that's a bit too much for me. I'm gonna step out of that. Boaz, all yours. And you go, okay, great, you got it. And Boaz then takes it and they go through and they, they, they go through all that's required in the law of being a kinsman redeemer. And they get to the point where they marry And then God brings redemption out of the tragedy of all this loss because now Boaz is redeeming the line and the family line and resurrection and life because now, and it talks about this in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, how the the lineage, as though the dead were still alive because Boaz is redeeming it, the lineage then continues as well. And so somehow we get from chapter 1, death and tragedy, to chapter 4, Resurrection, new life, redeemed lineage, redeemed back into the land, and hope fully restored in their lives. And I want to ask this question because I think for a lot of us when we're looking at the book of Ruth, if we were to sit, and I'm presenting it like this to say, this is how it happens, and then you should sit there and go, okay, so how did that happen? And there is a central force in the book of Ruth, and we've talked about it through the entirety of the series every week, where it's not just... God does this, and then God does this, and then God does this. Actually, in Ruth, God is fairly absent in his, in his activity. He is a God of behind the scenes. He is a God that isn't, isn't, isn't just just interceding and inter- intersecting all of the action and all of the activity, and then God did, and then God did. It actually reads, and then Ruth did, and then Boaz did. And the people in the story are the ones who are acting. And so somewhere between one and four, we see two things. First... It's people acting, and the second, it's acting with godly character. And we've noted this idea that the driving force in Ruth is unique and that it's not God's action, rather, it's God's people acting with godly character. The central driving force in the book of Ruth is not God acting, it's God's people acting and doing so with godly character. And in the book of Ruth, as you're framing it, so tragedy in one all the way to restoration, redemption, and new life in four, you should ask that question. How do do we get there? And it's through the people's actions, but then this one word appears in each chapter, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and when we're reading the scriptures, it might not be super obvious or super highlighted because in the English translation, it's the word kindness. In chapter one, this is appearing in 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 10. We translate it kindness a lot. But we've talked in this last series that it's actually the word hesed. The Hebrew word of hesed, which doesn't have this real like direct translation to. Now, that was hesed. So in English, this is the equivalent. It's kind of this, uh, what, what is that? And so we say kindness because we need a word to describe it. But more, more ac- accurately, We should be saying steadfast love and faithfulness. That the way that the book of Ruth bridges a gap from chapter 1, tragedy and loss and death, to chapter 4, life, is the people of God acting with the character of God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That us in our lives then have this option to participate. I don't think Ruth is being prescriptive in this space. I don't think it's saying, well, if you do A, steadfast love and faithfulness, then B will obviously happen. I think Ruth is showing one of the ways in which God comes and interacts with our stories, and it's through godly character. Because a lot of us know, maybe a lot of us know, a lot of people doing a lot of great things, but then it's void of character, and somehow it misses the mark. I've been listening to, and I will admit grieving through, the, uh, the podcast that Christianity Today has put out, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's just processing and a lot of prayers and a lot of, a lot of heaviness from that. I have to be in a really good spot because it's, just, it's hard for me to listen to God's people and, and the idea of common edification and the good into Christ and that, that coming apart through the way that this podcast is being presented in this church. But recognizing that is it a gifting that's missing? Is it action that's missing through the course of this podcast? And when they're talking about the story of the church in Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll as the leader of it, no, they're doing very good things, godly things, and they're really, really good at what they do. What's the missing element? Godly character. That what, what happens in the story is that devoid of godly character and godliness, the plans of God, the missions of God, the kingdom come of God actually then falls short or falls flat or fails at actually delivering which is really really fascinating to say if I'm holding that podcast up because it's just been on my mind for weeks and months now as I've been listening through it, into the book of Ruth and going, this is Boaz and Ruth. They were not lazy. They were not sluggards. They were constantly looking for the opportunities to act And to do it in a godly way, this is Boaz in this chapter, chapter 4, in the first half of it going, I won't redeem until I go through the godly actions of looking for the one who is closer to me familiar in in family line. And then if he says, no, I'll do it, he's saying, I'm agreeing with the way that God moves through godly action, and I'm not being lazy. But then he also combines that, and Ruth combines it, and Naomi combines it, and this is what they're saying in chapter 1, and chapter 2, and chapter 3 with the godly character of said, Steadfast love and faithfulness. And what happens as a result then, I think, is in chapter four, which is what we've been looking at, but then it's also bigger than that. Because the story doesn't just get from how do we get from death for tragedy to life and redemption. It's how we, it's it's a story of death and tragedy, life and redemption in the book of Ruth. But then the book of Ruth is set death and tragedy, life and redemption in the grand narrative of all of the scriptures. If you're ready, we're going to nerd out a little bit on this for just a second, so stick with me. Because the, the, the book of Ruth is a whole story in itself, but it's not the full story of the work of God and what he's doing in the scriptures. So to Naomi and Ruth, and this might have been their whole story, but it not being the whole story, because we know something that Ruth doesn't. We know the genealogy at the end, and this is what I say, That Ruth doesn't, if you look in chapter four right now, if you look in your scriptures, the last couple of verses are a genealogy and it counts four generations from Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David. And for them, they're probably like, we could read this and go, David, that's a big deal. It's the king. This is amazing. And to to Ruth, it would have been like, okay, so my grandson Jesse had eight sons and you're telling me if I'm still alive that the eighth one is important for some reason. And it's this fascinating thing that in her story, it's a full story, but it's not the whole story of what God's doing in the redemption act of from death and tragedy to life redemption. And let me say it this way. The whole of the scripture starts not in the book of Ruth, but in Genesis and in the garden and in the fall and in sin and in tragedy of us rebelling in our own sinfulness and then death entering the world through sin. So that story of death and tragedy isn't unique to Ruth. It's actually in Ruth, but reflecting in some way, well, actually, Genesis starts that story of death and tragedy. And then it goes through, and the genealogy is important. And I I know a lot of times we go, genealogies, a whole lot of names, great. But if you will, scroll through me with a couple of the genealogy names that are mentioned in Ruth's genealogy. And this is important because we talked about it, and it it was the gospel reading In the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, the the genealogy for Jesus goes Abraham through Ruth and into King David, multiple generations, exile out of exile to Jesus. And I'm going to show you a couple of the promises that God was making through this whole thing. This is Genesis 1 the fall then coming to Abraham which is the pivot point in the scripture in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. It's called the Abrahamic covenant and what God is doing is saying I know there is sin and sin has allowed death but I have a plan For life and redemption to come. And it's going to come through you, the man of faith, Abraham. So that through you, instead of a curse of the fall, all nations will be blessed. And I have this plan to start undoing it. And then from Abraham goes this genealogy that generation by generation, his line continues. And it goes through Boaz and Ruth to Obed to Jesse to David. And this is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors, I will rise up your descendants, one of your very own children, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So between Abraham and David is Ruth and Boaz, and then all of them in the lineage culminate in the blessing and the kingship and the eternal reign of Jesus. And so what we see is this story of the godly people acting with godly character, the steadfast love and faithfulness of a said for them, leads to this story of new life and redemption. There is a birth of a baby, and it's actually fascinating. I love in Ruth. We keep on saying, God doesn't directly interact. God doesn't directly act. God doesn't directly act, except God is the one who opens the womb for the child to be conceived and born. So God himself is the one acting and willing new life. And then he takes their lineage and continues it to David. And then David is promised an heir forever, and we get to the person of Jesus. And so in the story, the outsider Ruth, the Moabitus, becomes actually a key part, paving the way of the entire story of death and tragedy in the garden to be undone through the faithfulness of God's people and action. If you will, allow me, just I want to take some space right now. I want to be real a second for just a millisecond let down my guard is that okay great however that goes I think where we're at we can see a story of Ruth and we can say great faithfulness moved her story from death and tragedy to life and resurrection steadfast love that's great and then Ruth is set within this bigger story of Genesis to Jesus death and tragedy blessing kingship king Jesus comes great it all makes sense it's all great but you're speaking of faithfulness, and but in this space, in this room right now, actually what a lot of us are experiencing is fatigue and frustration. Because I'm telling you this story in the midst of 2020, which we thought was bad, and then 2021 came and we're still in this, right? Like, I, yesterday I was reading the paper, and there was a, I, I read the paper, by the way, because uh, I'm old, at least in my soul. We get it delivered. I go out in my pajamas. I open it up one of the story's headlines was almost two years into the pandemic. And I didn't read the rest of it because that caught me. And I just sat there being like, it has been two years. Ah, That's why I feel so tired. Anyone? That's why I feel so frustrated still. Anyone? That's why I feel like, where's the firm footing in all of this? Where, where, what's the thing that I can count on? Yesterday and today, and maybe I can still count on it again tomorrow. I get to do pastoral counseling with New Life Downtown, and and one of the things that I've observed is a lot of the things that we're frustrated by the most are the things that we can control the least. I want you to take account of your last two years of life and projecting maybe in the next couple months or years in the future. Because all of a sudden, we're going like, oh, great, we got the vaccine, and some people are taking it, and then some people aren't, and then there's the Delta, and then there's the Omicron, which sounds like a transformer, and it's like, <laughs> what? where are we in this whole story? I still can't control anything, and then I can't control the effect of that thing, and then the effect of that thing, and the effect of that thing, and all of a sudden, we are so fatigued, and we're so frustrated. And I'm coming with a word and saying, guys, as a church, as a people of God, Ruth is imploring, the author of Ruth is imploring us, move the story forward with our action and our godly character, with our steadfast love and our faithfulness. But I'm telling it to a people I think that we're largely frustrated and fatigued. We're just tired. We've been doing this again. And then I say this on a family Sunday, so half of you in this room are fatigued because you're kids right now. And it's like, Let's just be quiet. Like, I know. We took our three-year-old to the nutcracker the other day. That was great. We tried, right? We tried, we try, we try our best. But in the things that we can't control, we're frustrated most by the things we can control the least. And when you start taking into account our lives, that's exactly what happens, is you can tell me your stories, and I've heard your stories over the last couple of years. I've tried the steadfast love and faithfulness thing. And guess what? It's not working. Do you know the state of my marriage? I tried this steadfast love and faithfulness, and it's not working. Do you know the family issues? Like, I say Happy Thanksgiving, and you're like, ha thanks for that trigger. Like, I tried. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to be steadfast and loving and faithful. But it's really actually quite a bit harder than that. I tried. And and, and when we talk about steadfast love and faithfulness, I, I love this idea of the way that, The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy, but then we see, like, okay, Ruth, so what did you actually control? Ruth and and Boaz and Naomi, you did your best to continually sow seeds, to continually agree with the way of God, but then you had a kid. One of the things I joke about um, when we do marriage, like premarital counseling, like, hey, guys, by the way, you're gonna get married. One of the best things in the world, right? Except you're also taking on the biggest assignment of not being able to control something because you get married and you can't control that other person you're married to and then we have kids and you can't control getting pregnant or how the pregnancy goes or how the delivery goes and then that kid comes and you can't control that kid. Would you please just be quiet? No, they're like three months old and they need something so they're crying or they get to five or they get to 15 or you have adult children and guess what? You still can't control them. Why did you do that? I don't know but I can't control you. And so somewhere in this story of death to life, of tragedy to redemption, of it being Ruth and Naomi's story, chapter one through four, of it being the biblical story from Genesis to Abraham to Ruth to David to Jesus, we actually then put ourselves in a position to recognize the one whose steadfast love and faithfulness actually does make all of this possible. And it was, our God, it was our New Testament reading in Philippians where what he's talking about in there is the faithfulness of Jesus is what we place our faith in. The faithfulness of Jesus, because I'm telling you, the story moves ahead and God moves through his people when they, live, when they act in godliness and when they carry the character of God in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Jesus is the one who fully embodies this. He is the king. He is the one through whom everyone is blessed. But our faith isn't in, okay, I did it. I had this COVID thing and I muscled up and like I'm saying, you guys, we were fatigued And we're frustrated because we can't control a lot. And it's going, yeah. But there is one, and I'm always so thankful for this, who is sovereign. How many times do I get to the end of my rope and I find that's where Jesus is just starting his sovereign control and going, oh God. And my faith isn't if I am faithful enough and loving enough, then this result will happen. My faith is, Jesus, you are the faithful one to the Father, even to the point of death. Father, you are the loving and faithful one to the Son, and you did not abandon him to the grave, but resurrected him. And as I have my faith in Jesus, and his faithfulness is to the Father, and the Father to the Son, who sent the Spirit, and by the power of the Spirit, resurrection life was breathed into his lungs, and on the third day he rose from the dead, my faith is in that, then too. I am resurrected (laughs) and how do I get from death to life in Jesus and in his life and resurrection because he took on death God overcame death and brought new life and how do I get from tragedy to redemption in Jesus because he's the one who takes our stories and goes I know you're not sovereign but keep hoping in me that I'm at work, just like Ruth, I'm at work, I'm behind the scenes, I'm doing it a little bit longer, a little bit longer, it's, I'll, I'll work it all out, I'll show you. And I love that fact of, we, we get to the point of like, how long, God, how long? Because sometimes we too, we ask this question of, God, I've been sowing for so long, but it just doesn't feel like I'm reaping it. And I wanna encourage this, I, th- I feel like this word came a couple of weeks ago in community that we, a bunch of us were praying together. We reap the substance of what we sow, but not the measure. We reap the substance of what we sow, but not always the equal measure of what we sow. And sometimes we get so frustrated, God, I've put in 10 times the effort and I'm not gaining 10 times the effect. And at the end of ourselves and at the end of something we can't control, most likely another person, we get to this point where we go, all right, maybe it's not that I can control or can't control it, but in faith, I'm putting my faith in your faithfulness and now I'm waiting for you to do it because the Lord of the harvest is not us, it's him. The one who brings a a, a fruition of of our efforts is not us, it's him. One waters, another sows, but God makes it grow. And it's this idea that God, at some point, I can't control it. And I'm frustrated the most at what I can control the least. And so I'm just either going to hold on to this fatigue and frustration or I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to let it go and give it to you. And hope, and that's the week, this week of Advent, hope that you will not abandon me to the grave, but that in this lifetime or the next, you will bring new life. And this lifetime or the next, you will bring restoration of all things. In this lifetime or the next, you will do exactly what you've promised to do through Abraham, through Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, through David, through all of the kings, through all of the lineage, into the person of Jesus, and that in him my faith is, therefore my hope is not going, is this actually gonna happen? Because our hope is a confident expectation based on past present circumstances? And what's my past circumstances? That means this hope is secure. That when I continue in a way of steadfast love and faithfulness, it's not all lost. That Jesus died and was resurrected. And in his death, I have died. And in his new resurrected life, I have new life. And that we're then contending for that life in the here and now. Beloved, we're tired. It's hard to trust. It's hard to think, Is this going to get better? Because, again, I open that paper and I go, oh, good, a new variant. Man alive. Oh, good, oil prices. Something else I can't control. Oh, good, inflation. That's fun. Can't control it. But what we're trusting and what we're hoping for isn't something we can control. It's in the God who is sovereign over all of it. And as I pivot to the table now, there's another line that was was gifted to us. It was a grace to my family. It hangs in my son's bedroom. Uh, of a servant of God who's come before us, Corey Tinboom, and she left me with this line because I want you to hold all the things you can't control in your hand, all the outcomes you can't actually control, all the sorrows and the fatigues, and I don't know what to do with this. I want you to hold all of that, and then be encouraged by this line from Corey Tinboom. That we would never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That when Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are contending with steadfast love and faithfulness, they're trusting the God who is steadfast and loving and faithful. When they're contending for things they can't control, they're trusting the God who is in control. And that we today, that hope is secure because Christ has risen from the dead. And it leads us back to the table to reunite as a church body yet again with God. Let's come to the table now.